This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We talked on Monday about the death of Kobe Bryant and the eight others aboard that helicopter that crashed on Sunday morning just north of Los Angeles. But Kobe Bryant's been a very, a very kind of transcendent person and transcendent figure over the last, what are we looking at now, over 20 years from the time he joined the NBA. When you look at kind of the social media side of things, he was front and center. When you look at the advent of YouTube, people who maybe didn't see him win those three championships in a row with Shaquille O'Neal have all been able to go back and kind of find his highlights and take a look at what made him great on the floor. A lot's been talked about with regard to what he has done in the entertainment world. The guy won an Academy Award. And just his his you know, fixture in kind of our, our news sequences that go on. And you've, you struggle to find somebody who has touched so many different areas and now he's gone. And so we're going to talk about the impact on social media on Sunday and some of the things that were going on in about 20 minutes from now. But I want to look back at the tribute that was played last night in Toronto, one of what will be many tributes as teams play on their home floor or play in their home building, depending on the sport. And Darren Boland was there. And Darren is a Global News reporter in Toronto. Darren, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Pleasure to be with you. Darren, talk to us about what the mood was like as it got closer to game time last night, because this was a Toronto Raptors game against Atlanta. It didn't have any L.A. ties necessarily to it outside of maybe those ties that the players had. But what was it like as the game got closer? I mean, as as the game got as it got closer and closer to tip off, you it sort of seemed as if there was there was a sense of trying to get back to trying to find their people trying to find their way back to a sense of normalcy uh, in a way but everyone knew that it, something was going something was coming something in, in to honor uh, the late Kobe Bryant something was going to come and when they dropped the lights uh, after the uh, the couple of horns went off for the players to clear the court right before player introductions the lights went down and the and Herbie Coon the PA announcer for the Toronto Raptors came out and said you know please direct your attention to the video board and you could you could feel you could feel the emotion in the arena, both along the along the media gallery where where I was standing last night watching it, and and looking down over the the, the thousands that were there. You could you could feel the emotion. I mean, uh, there was a I can tell you right now there was a lump in this guy's throat watching it, and a few others beside me, a few tears shed as well. It was it was tough. Uh, I think for a lot of people there, where you normally see the the usual dawning of the the red and black for Raptors, there was a spot of purple and gold uh, throughout the arena because, as you know, and, and as people know, and as you said, Kobe transcended the sport. He was so much more than than an L.A. Laker, but everyone, that Lakers jersey, that purple and gold, number eight, number 24, that is forever synonymous with Kobe. And to see that across the arena last night and feeling that emotion, it just showed you how how much this how much this man touched the, the the sporting world and and had a lasting effect on fans 
Darren Bolin with us. Evening news anchor with Global News Radio AM640 in Toronto reporting last night at the Toronto Raptors game as they took on the Hawks. There was a video board tribute, and is there a way to describe some of the, the elements that they had in that tribute? So in in, in true fashion, I mean, in, in when you when you experience loss like that, I, I think we all I think we all kind of know that the best way to do it is the best way to kind of try and, and move a little forward from it is to is to laugh and and to smile. And fans couldn't help but but chuckle and smile when uh, the main portion of the video was to show uh, Kobe's skills, and he exhibited some of those skills on Toronto back in 2006 when he dropped 81 points on the Toronto Raptors, and you couldn't help but you, you couldn't help but smile because throughout even through the tragedy something like that you don't see at you don't see every day and it's been so so long since we've saw a performance like that highlighting that and then at the end of the video tribute it states the place stayed silent and then they held a 24 second of silence 24 seconds of silence and they had a countdown on the uh, on the video board in memory of Kobe's jersey number 24 um, but you could you could definitely feel the emotion in the arena last night that's for sure Darren on Sunday when the Toronto Raptors played the San Antonio Spurs of course there wasn't time to create something like a video tribute at that point but there were still tributes and the 24 second clock played a part that they let that tick down and then the other team in inbounded the ball they let the clock tick down once again for that Kobe Bryant number 24 we saw it happen in other games last night was anything like that done again? Uh, not, not so much. I mean, Toronto, uh, both Toronto and Atlanta sort of, they did their own thing, uh, around the, around the time of it happening. Of course, you mentioned Toronto playing in San Antonio, um, Atlanta. I can't really recall off the top of my head where they were playing that day, but, um, in the, in the days past, they had, they had, uh, did something similar themselves. Um, but teams all across the league have been doing that, running out the 24 second shot clock and also running out the eight second backcourt uh, clock as well again in memory of those two numbers but um, beyond that though you're seeing so much more uh, from the league and, and I think this is this highlights how much of a brotherhood that you find uh, within the NBA family you have players all across the league now who wear the number eight they are now giving that number up and they are changing their numbers. There's been a handful of players um, already, uh, kind of most more notably uh, for for those that are Raptors fans listening in. Uh, he plays with the Orlando Magic now, but former Raptor Terrence Ross uh, has changed from his number eight. He will now wear 31. But I would like to point out just one that I, I think is very very poignant, and it's from none other than the LA Lakers. Quinn Cook is a guard for the LA Lakers, and he is giving up his number two and is instead going to wear the number 28. And the, the significance behind 28 is that's a combination of Kobe's jersey number eight and also his daughter Gianna's number two that she wore through high school as well as sort of a tribute to both of them now wearing 28. And I think that that when I read that, I mean, that you can't help but, again, that lump in your throat, you can't help but just have those feelings and just see what this family, what, both Kobe and his family meant to the LA Lakers. Darren, thanks so much for your time today, and thanks for covering that last night. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on, Mike. Have a good day. Hey, we'll talk again. That's Darren Boland. He is evening news anchor on Global News Radio AM 640 in Toronto and was reporting on the game last night. And he highlights the fraternity, and there are a couple of other stories that you can look at. One that really goes to 
how wild that 81-point night was for Kobe Bryant against the Toronto Raptors. But there's another one that was circulated by the ringer. And it goes back to Kobe Bryant's last game. He had 59 points. And Kobe Bryant was fouled late in the game, had a chance for a 60-point game. They're very rare. He had six of them in his career, and he was one of the greatest players ever to play. You just don't get 60 points in a game. And the Lakers were actually playing against the Utah Jazz, and Gordon Hayward was playing for the Jazz at that time. He now plays for the Boston Celtics. You might remember him from the horrifically broken leg that he suffered in his first game as a member of the Celtics. That's the guy. And so Gordon Hayward is lined up. Kobe Bryant is taking a foul shot, and he's made one. He's at 59 points. And as he takes the other one, Gordon Hayward steps on the line, which is illegal. And usually it will be blown down, and then the free throw would have to be retaken. It wouldn't count. So he did that. Now, in this case, he's on the other team, so it didn't have that that necessary, that that effect. But had Kobe Bryant missed it, they could have blown it down and allowed him to retake it. So Gordon Hayward, a guy on the other team, steps on the line to basically give Kobe Bryant another chance to get 60 points just in case he needed it. That's that fraternity that exists in all sports, especially at the professional level, because you just appreciate what people are are able to do. And that 81 points, you know, everybody talks about Wilt Chamberlain and his 100-point game. That's incredible that someone was able to do that. Very different time. Kobe Bryant's 81 points, you could easily argue that was harder to do than Wilt Chamberlain's 100, where there may have been some fouls that helped him out. There may have been some lackluster defense. Hey, this guy has a chance to get to 100 points. That kind of thing may have been going on. A different time as well. And that Kobe Bryant getting 81 points in a game, which is the second highest total ever, that right there was a whole lot harder than Wilt Chamberlain's 100 points. Twitter was absolutely inundated, and in some ways still is, in terms of memories of Kobe Bryant. Uh, but the, the entire day that played out on Twitter in terms of covering the death of Kobe Bryant bears looking at, because we need to look back at it and realize what was happening, how it was happening, and when something like this happens again, and sadly it will. Tragically, it will. If you've been around long enough, you'll learn that pretty fast. But in the case of covering a a news event in 2020, you've got a, a lot of things to consider. And sometimes you just have to take whatever device you're using and put it down, put it away, leave it alone. And so we're going to talk about those things with the help of two master's students in media studies from Western University, Farzan Mirzazada and Stanley Park. And Farzan, maybe we can start with you. We've talked about how Kobe Bryant touched not just the sports world, but the news world and entertainment. We've talked about the fact that his death brought a social media response that might never have been seen before. How did you observe what was happening? I mean, it, it was it was really shocking because I mean, this is Kobe Bryant, uh, forty-one years old, if I'm not mistaken, 
um, a legend of basketball going into the second phase of his life. Um, a champion, really, not just for for the NBA, but also for for women's sports, in particular women's basketball, um, and just sport in general. And so, he's an icon, um, a figure that you know who's known all around the world. And so, you could really feel uh, the impact of his loss. Uh, and, and you know, with Twitter these days, and, and Instagram, and all the social media um, platforms that exist, it was just an outpouring of of shock. People didn't want to believe it. Um, but if we actually look at the reporting, I think there, there's, a, there's a big problem with, with the way that this news broke. Um, TMZ, who you know, were the news organization who, who uh, leaked the news, I guess, who broke it first. But as we've come to know now, um, the Los Angeles uh, County, the police department, were very unhappy with, uh, with the way that um, TMZ broke the news. And understandably so. Uh, it, it's remarkable and, and really disappointing that a news organization, by the way, that's owned by Time Warner Cable, who also owns CNN, uh, a news organization like that. And I understand that they're a tabloid, but having said that, I mean, this is a really, really sensitive piece of information, right? And so for them to break the news in the manner that they did, is really unacceptable. They've done this, and they did this in 2009 with Michael Jackson, in 2012 with Whitney Houston, in 2016 with Prince. And I won't deny that they do have a high accuracy rate in terms of getting, um, getting it right, especially when it's uh, incidents around the Los Angeles area. Um, but it, it's just the manner that they, that they um, leaked the news. Kobe Bryant's family had not been informed of this. And, and none of the other families had been informed either because, as we know, um, there were, I think, a couple other families involved uh, who shouldn't be forgotten either. And so for them to have not been informed about this and for this news to have broke in the manner that it did, it's just completely unacceptable. It's unethical. Um, again, I totally understand uh, the commercialization of the, of the media these days. Um, I think, Mike, you know as well, you know, the importance of ratings and, you know, the fact that, we, you know, the news industry wants to provide an element of, of entertainment. They want to be first to break these, you know, these exclusive scoops or, or the breaking news. But it has to still be done in an ethical manner. Um, and it simply wasn't done in the right way. I mean, and I'll just contextualize this. Um, in 2014, Manchester United fired their manager, David Moyes. Um, and the news broke a day before uh, on Twitter. And so that, when that news leaked, he had not been informed about this. Now, this is a guy who still got compensated and got a payout, and it's no way anywhere near as, you know, as, as severe and as sensitive as what happened to Kobe Bryant and the rest of uh, the individuals who, who uh, passed away in this uh, helicopter crash. But the point that I'm trying to make is that that in itself is pretty unacceptable for news to break of someone losing their job a day before without them being informed. So just think about the pain and the grief and, and the anger that the families must have felt when news was reported on social media, started by TMZ, that their family members had perished in this accident. It's incomprehensible. It's really not acceptable. And so um, it's, it's a real shame. It really is. But unfortunately, it seems like 
that's the way um, that's the way uh, media and especially tabloid tabloids uh, operate these days. Exactly. Farzan Mirzazada and Stanley Park joining us, both master's media studies students at Western University. Just to take people behind the scenes, if you have information like that, and if you're looking to confirm it, and perhaps there was a conversation with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, a lot of times the news media outlet will be told, hey, we have not informed the next of kin. You need to hold off on this. We will do that, and then we'll get back to you, and then we'll talk about releasing the names and the information. And that's usually the way it goes. And then, of course, the news media may have a choice. Okay, are we we going to take the ethical road, or are we going to take the unethical road? And anymore, that information just gets put out there. And then, Farzan, maybe you could comment on the idea that as that came out, then all of a sudden everybody else has to go out. The LA Times came out and said, hey, we're aware of what is being reported. We don't have anything substantial right now, but but just stay with us and, and we'll let you know. And they were tweeting things like that. But then you had ABC7 making a horrible error that it was Kobe's family, his daughters that were on the helicopter. You had Fox making errors. You had all kinds of outlets just trying to get information just throwing out whatever they had. Can we ever get away from this, or is this just the way things are now? It's really unfortunate because it goes back to the commercialization of, of the media and particularly the news media. When And again, um, I mentioned earlier that TMZ is owned by Time Warner Cable, and uh, Time Warner also owns CNN. And so while CNN you know, wasn't in the list of... Um, of of media outlets who made an error in terms of this reporting, as far as I'm aware. Um, it just goes to show that that lack of trust that exists, especially in the U.S., around around those traditional media outlets. Um, and that's depicted by the Edelman Barometer Trust, which, which uh, gauges the public's trust in the media. And it's really unfortunate because when instances like this occur, it just it adds to, to that distrust of the press. Um, listen, the reality is, Mike, they... News organizations, especially these trusted major traditional outlets, they have to do their job properly. They have to make sure that they've covered all their bases before they're reporting on such a sensitive, important topic. Um, and it's not just because it's 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 a basketball icon in Kobe Bryant. In any case, they have to they have to do their due diligence and make sure that what they're reporting is accurate. Because, I mean, think about. Um, Kobe Bryant's daughters who were not involved in, in, in the accident, and they're seeing this news, and they're thinking, wait a second, we're, we're fine. Like, what is going on? What is actually true? What is not true? It, it's really, really disappointing. Um, in terms of answering your question directly, I'm not sure that we can get away from this anytime soon, because it all comes back to the fact that everyone wants to be first to report an exclusive piece of information. And because of the ratings involved with that, because of the fact that everything has to be entertaining. I mean, look at CNN and Fox. They're, you know, they're two organizations that are that differ in terms of uh, the political spectrum, in terms of their coverage. But all day, all day, all night, they're talking about, you know, Trump, whether it's the impeachment, whether it's his foreign policy, whether it's his domestic policy. It's Trump all day, every day. And that's because of ratings. As much as, you know, a lot of people hate the guy, the reality, and, and rightly so, but the reality of the situation is it's about ratings, and he generates ratings, and that's why they talk about him all the time, and he is a showman, and he knows how to um, u- utilize his, his skills, I guess, that, um, that he's developed over the years as a, 
as a television character in many ways. Um, and, and, you know, the, the media feed into that. And so that's the biggest problem. It really is. I don't know how we can get away from that. Um, I don't know, if, Stanley, you have anything to add on that. But Yeah, yesterday I was watching uh, TNT. Um, they were coming out there on the, the Lakers versus Clippers game got postponed. So in, in, instead of that, they had a tribute for Kobe Bryant. And Rick Fox was also on that show for a little bit. And he was talking about how that, how that news uh, about how, oh, Rick Fox was on the helicopter as well and how that broke his family. And so Kenny Smith, this former Rocket um, two-time champion, said he said he put it best, the race to be first and to tell a story. You don't know what that does to people, right? So when he heard the news that Rick Fox might have been on the helicopter, he immediately, sorry, not immediately, but he was kind of wondering going back and forth on whether he should call someone near him or around him or if he should call it Rick Fox directly. So then he just simply texted, uh, I believe he texted Rick Fox saying just a simple, um, something along the lines of just say, just say, just say a hey back or something like that. And then Rick Fox responded with a hey and a broken, broken heart emoji. And that just broke Kenny Smith down on the show, on the air. And you, and then we, t- we can talk about how that affected just everyone that was involved, even though because of the misinformation that was uh, being disseminated by the news. Yeah, we're talking with Stanley Park, we're talking with Farzan Mirzazetta, and both are Masters Media Studies students, and we're just looking at, at the way that all of this has played out, maybe some of the things we can learn from it, and we've talked about the media side, but there's another element to this as well, and it's the impact of the death of Kobe Bryant and making use of social media, making use of Twitter, making use of Instagram to grieve to share stories, to bring people together. And Stanley, that's something that it would be great to get your thoughts on. I know it's maybe a maybe a, a general question or a difficult question to answer, but do you feel social media was a helpful place for people to share their stories and to grieve? Man, that's, that's a really tough uh, question to answer. Um, because immediately when I, when I think about people posting uh, you know, memories of Kobe, tributes of Kobe, um, stories about Kobe, all these good things. Um, and all I can really think about is his family, right? And I'm just wondering, oh, man, what, what, I wonder what the family is going through. So, you know, there's also this ethical concerns as well. But just in general, from what I've seen on, on whether it's on Facebook, Twitter, or even on, on the NBA, our NBA uh, subreddit community, it's just nothing but love. So... It's just bringing everyone together in, in many ways, but at the same time, I think there are these ethical concerns that we also have to keep in mind as well in terms of what should we say, how should we say things, uh, what kind of information should be said about Kobe now, uh, that, now that he has passed away. So there are a lot of aspects that we have to think about, but to answer your question directly, man, that's a, that's a very tough question to answer in my opinion. Stanley, when when we consider Kobe Bryant, the fact that he is as transcendent as he was, he was able not just to touch the sports world, but the entertainment world, the news world. How many figures could be in in the same realm as that? I mean, is this really unique? As, as a sports figure, I do believe it's very unique. Um, I mean, just personally speaking, I can't imagine, I can't remember the time I was very emotional about an athlete passing. Um, ever since uh, one of my favorite, favorite uh, baseball players of all time, and Roy Halley, passed away. But in terms of the reaction, I, I don't think it was as big uh, and as iconic as 
uh, the moment that that occurred this past uh, Saturday, I believe. Yeah, and just to, just to jump in here, Mike, um, I mean, the only other sporting figure that I can really think about that had this incredible aura and incredible um, legend about him, I guess it would be Muhammad Ali, um, who, who passed away relatively recently as well. And, I mean, we can see um, in, in a lot of these campaigns now that we see on Twitter and on social media um, where people are, you know, trying to um, get the NBA to change the logo in, in remembrance of Kobe Bryant, change the silhouette, um, you know, just, just for Kobe Bryant's legacy to, I mean, it's always going to be there. There's no question about that. But just for it to be really highlighted um, on the NBA logo, I, I think that, that wouldn't be the worst idea at all. Um, I mean, I, just a personal anecdote, I guess, I can, I can think about would be, you know, when we were kids, and I'm, I think Stanley might uh, agree with this, um, when we were kids, I mean, kids in elementary school, we would crumple up a piece of paper, you know, yell Kobe and th- as we're throwing it in the trash can. Um, I mean, that's, that, that's the incredible legacy that Kobe Bryant, um, Kobe Bryant had, really. He, you know, he's, he's one of the greatest NBA players of all time. He's one of the greatest sporting icons of all time. And so it's a really tragic loss. It's really disappointing um, to see the way in which it was reported. It's just a real shame. Farzan, Stanley, thank you so much for your thoughts and your opinions on this. Thanks, Thank Mike. Appreciate much. it. Thank you. Marzan Mirzazada and Stanley Park, they are two master students in media studies, and so paying very close attention to things like the impact of social media and how social media is being used. So thanks for the conversation. It's a conversation that you can have, but it's not going to change anything. You know, you have this, this big push to be first, and you have too many people controlling things now where you've got reporters who who may have, you know, control of of say whatever it happens to be, whether it's TMZ, whether it is, you know, the LA Times, they were fine, but let's say ABC7, they made a mistake in the reporting. And they're able to put something out there when before it was different. Something like this, if you take away the internet, no one even knew about this primarily until Monday morning, unless you caught a radio or a television newscast late Sunday. No one would know about this until Monday, and you wouldn't have details reported until much later in the day, and everybody would put those stories together. It would maybe have some immediacy on radio, but you would still be going just based on what the L.A. County Sheriff's Office was saying. So this was very different, because everybody's a reporter, and nobody knows how to do it. Not even some of the people who are paid to do it as was the case with some of the mistakes that were made by outlets like ABC7. So very interesting study to look at and and a reason why when you're reading whatever it is, you've got to say, okay, who's this coming from? How reputable are they? And is this the truth? Buck Singer is the head coach of the Western Mustang men's hockey team, and we're going to take stock of being a university hockey player. And the other thing we get to do, OUA playoffs are coming. You know what? They make us feel like spring is around the corner. Clark, can you see the playoffs coming up over the horizon? Yes, they're uh, they're only a couple weeks away, and and we still have some work to do, Mike, to to punch our ticket. The, The competitiveness of the OUA West from 
top to bottom is like something I've, I've never seen before in my, oh, I don't know, 21, 22 years here. So we're sitting in a little precarious spot right now. I think we're six going into this weekend, and, and hopefully over the course of the next few games we can uh, secure our spot in the dance, so to speak. Man, there are no weak programs anymore in the Western Conference, are there? I mean, you go back to when you started, there were teams that, you know, year after year, whether it was Ryerson or certainly whether it was U of T that, that maybe didn't have as many top-end players. Now, look at this. I mean, those are the teams that kind of keep rising to the top. No, for sure. And, and I think that the one thing has changed the last 10 years with um, the the athletic scholarship being part of the landscape and youth sport and the OUA, there, there's many more CHL players, major junior players, uh, foregoing uh, the pro opportunity immediately after their junior careers to come to school. So there, there's a lot of programs now that are, are predominantly major junior players, and it has really increased the competitiveness of uh, each program. And, and I think the, the investment in university sport across the country and, and full-time coaches, assistant coaches. It's something very similar, I think, to what you see at, at major junior. So uh, the, the quality of the hockey, the quality of the, the competitiveness and the investment in, in, in most of the programs has really increased. And that's led to, I think, one of the, the most competitive leagues, especially in the West, you're going to see in hockey anywhere across the country. When you look at the players and maybe how attitudes have changed, are you seeing that players, maybe when they hit 19, 20 years old, coming out of major junior, are ready to say, you know, I, I could bang around a little bit in the pros, but I'm ready to, to take a path and, and hit a university and, and start my education and, and change my life? That can't be an easy decision for players. No, and I think there's a couple of prongs to it. I think, obviously that they look at our level of hockey and they now see it as a conduit to pro. That they don't see themselves just giving up the game and their pro dreams when they come to youth sport. I would say 80, 85% of the players that come into the youth sport level could move on to pro after their degree. And I'm talking pro in Europe. I'm talking, you know, like I think last year there were seven, eight players in youth sport that signed NHL deals. So, so we're talking a very, very high level of pro where you can, can earn a living. And I think the other thing is, an import, uh, is just as important in this day and age is education. And I think that, that you know, if, if you want to be successful and, and earn a great living nowadays, you, you generally need a, a post-secondary degree. So that's something that I think is becoming of increased importance, uh, you know, across the, the youth and in high schools and something that, you know, parents are, I know we're obviously talking about it with our kids, as you probably are with your kids. And, uh, you know, I think, think that they're looking at um, those players graduating, they're looking at uh, education and their future as a really important piece. And when you combine it, with, with how good the hockey is and how they can develop. And, you know, we're on the ice every day. We have strength and conditioning coaches full-time. You know, I mean, there's a lot of focus that gets put into youth sport programs on the hockey side as well. So I think it's a great avenue for, for, for young men to, 
to come and, and get a degree and, and continue to develop their athletic skills. Clark Singer with us, head coach of Western's men's hockey team. They are in action tonight at home to U of T at Thompson Arena and then tomorrow against Guelph at Budweiser Gardens. And I guess you go back and there were these stories. Mike Tomlack was one and Steve Ruchin was another and, and they were kind of these, these diamonds in the rough that would then go on and play pro. But you're right. You like, here's a big long list of players who not just NHL, but going over to play, seeing the world in Europe, things like that. Is it something that players will come to you and, and ask your thoughts about? Well, it, it's something that we always talk about in the recruiting process, Mike. And I think that, you know, we, we ask all the players that come into our program here, as I'm sure most most youth sport coaches do, you know, we want players that, that, that want to be here to develop. We want them to be here to develop as well as, you know, be focused on their education, those kind of two silos. And, and to go along with the developmental pieces, having the opportunity to go in and play pro hockey once they're done. Because if you look at the players we're recruiting, they're top-end major junior guys, they're top-end tier two guys and and they're guys that you know have have pro aspirations and and if if everything goes well they want to play pro when they're finished here but you know we we definitely touch on that during their career here as a mustang it's something that probably early on in in the process we're more focused on you know their uh their acclimatization to school and to london and into being successful in our program. And I think once they kind of hit their junior and senior years, you know, we're, we're talking a little bit more to them about the opportunities out there, creating, you know, hockey resumes. And, you know, I think last year in the playoffs here, we had eight or nine NHL scouts, pro scouts come and, and look at some of our seniors and, and seniors on, on Guelph, uh, looking for, uh, at them for, for pro contracts. So it's uh, our level of hockey, I think is, Maybe a little bit underappreciated by by the community, maybe even the student body here in London. But uh, definitely from a you know a pro scout standpoint, I, I know that uh, they invest in making sure they uh, they have their people here to see the the prospects once they graduate. Back to back showcases at Thompson Arena and then at Budweiser Gardens against U of T and then against Guelph. You have the London guys who will come and play for the Mustangs. You have Western as that attraction for students. But how big is it to kind of scour the country and and kind of recruit in a way to find players these days? Well, recruitment's a full-time job, Mike. It's, you know, when you look at, you know, there's 30-plus youth sport hockey programs across the country that are looking at picking up players, you know, 20 here in Ontario alone. And, you know, you can't just focus in your own backyard. And it's something that 15 years ago, you could probably, you know, draw, uh, you know, a 100-kilometer radius around London, and we had every player uh, from that area. But now we have players from B.C., we have players from Alberta. And, uh, you know, in order to get the best people with the highest character and guys that are focused on that academic and athletic silo and players we want in the program, you, you do have to look across the country. Obviously, you know, there's players like Ethan and, uh, you know, Alex Turco and, and Kyle Pettit and those those guys locally who maybe, you know, played uh, far away from home in their junior days, Owen Sound, Erie, you know, and they uh, want to just come back to, and live at home and, 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 and go to school here at Western to be to be local. But uh, there's other players that, that want to travel and go over. So uh, recruitment is a big, big part of what we do. And, and unlike you know, junior hockey or pro hockey where, you know, if things don't work out, you know, you can trade a player or something like that. You know, when a player comes here into, into 
our program, the Motion Sports Program. It's a four or five year commitment. So you want to make sure that incoming player is a great fit. You know, we want to make sure that we put a square peg in a square hole type of thing to make sure that, you know, they're happy with, with both the athletic and the academic side and, and we're happy with the, the person we're getting and they're, they're going to be focused on the academic and athletic side as well. So it's a, it's a big job and something that's fairly year round for us. Clark, best of luck doing what you've got to do to punch that ticket as the OUA playoffs kind of rise on the horizon and we're closer to spring. Thanks so much for talking hockey with us on and off the ice today. Thanks, Mike. Great to talk to you again. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.